Prospect Lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. You'll find farmers out spreading salt in the snow and towing stranded cars out of hedges. Somewhere deep in my psyche, a seed was planted that, pretending, could get me attention and approval. I'm fairly certain that my father is autistic. Two things we knew about Operation London Bridge. That it existed and that it was not a subject for conversation. A clearly defined, uniquely determined role will bring life satisfaction for King Charles. It's ludicrous that one in three millennials will never own a home when so many want to. Some of the boys have been isolated and disillusioned, discarded by and rejecting of society. Welcome to Prospect Lives, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a family of regular prospect writers filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in August. Jason Thomas Vanillier was enjoying a great British holiday while Farmer Tom was putting out fires on a neighbouring farm. A recent study on antidepressants had sparked an angry debate on social media, leading psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence to urge calm. This month, Anglican priest Alice Goodman tells us about the workings of Operation London Bridge in her parish, while expert by experience in the asylum system, Jason Thomas Vanillier, reflects on his complicated feelings towards the monarchy. Meanwhile, former England cricketer captain Michael Brearley is reminded of the joys of teamwork by a BBC One documentary, Freddie Flintoff's Field of Dreams. But let's begin with Farmer Tom who introduces us to the five types of farmer he regularly encounters. I love farming. Every day is different and it's good, honest work in the great outdoors. But it's not just the job that I enjoy. When city chief executives talk about their businesses, they typically wind up their soliloquies with that old cliche, but really it's all about the people. And there is an element of truth in such platitudes. Farmers are funny old fish, but beneath their weathered exteriors, they're just good people. And I've met a fair few over the years. Take Sam, for example. He rarely leaves the farm telling anyone who'll listen that he studied at the University of Life. He dislikes town, which is anywhere with a cash machine, and hates London, sometimes that London, preferring to hang out with his mates from the local young farmers club, the YFC. Once a farmer, always a young farmer. And Sam's no exception, even though he's now in his late 30s with two young children and a stressed out wife who doubles as the farm secretary. And did I mention that he's machinery obsessed? Sam can tell the difference between a Sumo Trio and a Cavernland DTX from miles away. Another farmer you'll find at the YFC is Jed. Jed may only be 25, but he doesn't mind lecturing everyone on how to farm, ski, drive or chase women. Fortunately, no one listens to Jed, who loves a drink and is self-obsessed. And with the booze comes what farmers call pub yields, those overly inflated farm records that are a ton to the hectare more than anyone else and go up as the drinks go down. Most farmers keep their farm business close to their chest, not Jed. He'll tell you about how much land he farms and all about his other successful business ventures, all the time with an ale or snake bite in hand. Now, while Jed is buying rounds of Jaeger bombs, Gareth is out in the field actually farming, or as he likes to call it, improving soil fertility. Gareth is a nutty, regenerative farmer. And when he isn't shepherding worms, he's always happy to talk 
at length about soil. He's a soil obsessive, and he doesn't limit himself to boring people in person. He's also on Twitter as at WormWrangler81, posting pictures of his latest experiment, fermenting manure or char-grilling roadkill. For someone so obsessed with the environment, he has a huge carbon footprint from his time spent at shows across the country and abroad, where he stands in fields with similar knock-kneed anoraks, tasting algal brews. Another farmer pronounced, or more often bellowed as a single syllable, Helen is a ruddy-faced grazier, meaning she looks after sheep or cattle. Though slight, Helen can finish a pint in four seconds, carry bulky straw bales in all weather, and easily catch large tups, male sheep, twice her size. She's also rumoured to have knocked Jed clean to the floor when he got a bit handsy at the YFC disco in 2013. As a livestock farmer, Helen is weather-obsessed, using five different apps and tuning into the forecast at 5am, despite believing none of the predictions. Her speech is punctuated with whistles as she simultaneously calls for her sheepdog, except on Tuesdays, when she can be found in her second home, the Market Calf. One of Helen's best friends is Brock, an impeccably dressed older gent who hangs out with a gang of elderly characters with impossible-sounding names upmarket. Albie, Myth and Woof. Brock loves a story. He's the farming equivalent of Del Boy's Uncle Albert. But instead of talking about the war, Brock regularly drifts off referencing historical weather events. 1940, of course, extremely cold winter. 1947, snow. 1953, rain. And 1976, drought. Brock may be as old as the hills, but the years have made him wise, and it's a fool that ignores his wisdom. He wears a waistcoat, tie, and a cap with the odd grease stain in all weathers. And sadly, it's often at the funerals of older farming characters like Brock that I learn just what wonderful souls they were, as stories are shared of their heroism, altruism, and lifelong friendships. It's this camaraderie that brings farmers together, not only with each other, but with the local community. You'll find farmers out spreading salt in the snow and towing stranded cars out of hedges. They'll move fallen trees, visit the elderly, and think nothing of spending an evening encouraging others in local politics or sitting up all night with a sick calf. There are lots of things that I love about farming, you see, but really, it is all about the people. While Farmer Tom respects the wisdom of older farmers like Brock, Sheila Hancock wishes more people would change their attitude towards the elderly. I am often asked why I chose to be an actor. Colleagues list seminal performances witnessed when young or an almost spiritual calling after appearing in a school play. Looking back, I realise my first school play may have subconsciously affected my choice of career. My primary school chose to stage a version of the, by today's standards, distastefully titled old film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I'd seen it several times and already knew all Snow White's lines, so was devastated when I was cast as dopey. Not to be defeated, my mum made me a splendid costume. She sewed a little train on my dressing gown, made an impressive cotton wool beard and a perky cap to hide the elastic holding it in place. On our first entrance, the seven diminutive boys and girls had to go up three steps onto the platform singing, Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to where we go. Somehow, I managed to get entangled in my train and fell flat on my face, which was smothered by the displaced beard. 
After a gasp, the audience laughed. When I stood up, they gave me a round of applause. It sounded very nice. Never one to resist milking a laugh, I fell down again and again and again. The audience loved it until some of the other brothers became hostile. Nobody was looking at Snow White. Somewhere deep in my psyche, a seed was planted that pretending could get me attention and approval. There's nothing unusual in that. Everybody does it. You don't have to be an actor. In real life, we change our demeanour with different people. The doctor, the baby, the lover, the boss, all see various versions of ourselves. We pretend to be what they will approve of. It's not intentionally deceitful. We shouldn't talk to the doctor in the same way as our lover. My mother worked in a sedate department store. One day I went to see her and was directed to the staff room. There I found my mother dancing and singing Knees Up Mother Brown, shrieking with laughter with her colleagues. I barely recognised her and she was shocked when she saw me. This was not her usual stern mother role, but a fun-loving, bawdy woman who I only ever saw on that one occasion. My husband, John Thor, a consummate actor by trade, suffered from bouts of depression. I would say to him, act being happy, and it sometimes worked. Now I'm trying to add happiness to my portrayal of Sheila, It's easy to find myself almost enjoying playing a miserable scene. So, if I am fatigued, I force myself to walk. If I feel sad, I remember a happy time and recreate it in my mind. I need to change the pace, my facial expression, my tone of voice, my walk, just as I would if playing a character. I'm subsequently in danger of being a better actor offstage than on. We need to alter the perception of age, to change the world's view of elderly folk as decrepit and past it. I didn't have a fall. I fell. I don't just want to talk about hip replacements. I even remember what sex is like. I care about the future of the world. All this begs the question, who is the real me? But the answer will not change people's perception of me. The other day, I was driving down a road that was empty except for one cyclist who was weaving all over the place. I realised he hadn't heard my hybrid electric car, so I gently pipped my horn before passing him. It made him jump and wobble and he swore quietly and grumbled a bit. But when he saw my white hair, he went mad with rage. You stupid old cunt, they shouldn't let you drive at your age, you should be put away, etc, etc. I opened my window and tried to talk to him, explained that I was trying to save him from an accident, and by the way, a very good driver, but he wouldn't have it. My role to him was an old woman who made him feel foolish. His role to me was a beautiful, lycra-cladded boy, perhaps nursing some previous hurt. However well we play our role, our character will be interpreted by others according to their life experience.
just like the audience of a play in the theatre. Sheila urges people to stop making assumptions about others. And Rebecca Lawrence shares her sentiment as she discusses autism. I'm fairly certain that my father is autistic. I have always known that he was unusual, but perhaps oddly, I've only lately considered this in the context of autism. If I'm honest, until recently, I had always viewed the concept of autism with slight suspicion. But now I recognise that this may have been because it was part of my family life from a young age. It wasn't abnormal. It just described one of the people who was closest to me. Autism has often been considered a condition of childhood, but in recent years, the experiences of autistic adults have been recognised and validated. As a result, more people whose differences went unrecognised as children are able to seek a diagnosis. This can help some autistic people to understand themselves and find peace after years of feeling different or not good enough. A diagnosis can also help others to understand autistic people better, improving communication and relationships. My father, who was happy for me to write this column and has read it, has a fascinating mind. He sees the world differently to most other people I know and remembers the most curious details. His descriptions of synesthesia make me wish I shared them. Seeing numbers as consistent arrays of colours would be lovely. Sometimes I used to pretend to myself I did, but I knew it wasn't really true. But then, at other times, he questions me intensely and I feel resentful. Why can't I remember the number for gold in the periodic table or the opus number of the Haydn Quartet I'm trying to tell him about? I don't retain these things like he does. Autism in adults can present itself in many ways. Some people, especially women, learn to mask their differences. I'm not fond of the word neurotypical as I think few of us fit into an exact model of normality, but autism tends to involve certain clusters of traits. These traits can include having difficulties interpreting the thoughts and feelings of others and finding communication challenging, perhaps appearing blunt or preoccupied with a particular subject. Some people may prefer solitude, have fixed routines or hobbies and unusual or enhanced sensory perception. Anxiety is common. This isn't a comprehensive list and a diagnosis should only be made by a specialist. Some people will have many of these features but choose not to seek a diagnosis, which is entirely reasonable. I love my father immensely and would never wish that he was any different. But understanding his behaviour in the context of autism has helped. Communication has not always been easy and I think that's down to both of us. I had thought he was unable to empathise and that I was the one making all the effort, typical daughter. And so I was intrigued to be pointed by Twitter friends towards Damien Milton's double empathy problem. Very simply, this states that we all have empathy for others, but people with and without autism have very different experiences of life, which means that we may not get each other. It goes both ways. Nothing has changed between my father and me. We meet and speak quite frequently, and I get annoyed with him for what seemed to me to be his obsessions, his poetry, his table squash game, and he doesn't understand my interest in any music from post-1850, not a precise date, which he will pick me up on. 
Sometimes we seem to be talking to the person that we would each like the other to be, and there are times when I think that I would have preferred a parent with whom I could communicate easily. My mother still talks about an occasion when we were small, when she went out for the day and he never gave us anything to eat. But they never asked, he said, surprised. Maybe it would have been easier to have a family where one could talk about things in a straightforward way, not dancing around anything, never quite meeting the other's eye. My father is a lateral thinker and communicator, and this is frustrating at times. But then I would have missed out on the joys of having a fascinating father who told us stories, taught us chess, and sees things in an entirely different way to anyone else. Sometimes I wonder what it would be like to be in a family where everyone was autistic or no one was. Possibly easier. But through my father, I've had glimpses of another way of thinking to my own, one that has made my life immeasurably richer and may help me better empathise with others. For Alice Goodman, the death of Queen Elizabeth meant the imposition of a strict protocol for her parish, known as Operation London Bridge. Two things we knew about Operation London Bridge. That it existed and that it was not a subject for conversation. To be seen to plan for the event was at the very least in poor taste. At the worst, bridging on treason. Here we'd salted away a leather-bound condolence book for each of the churches about four years ago. But that was the extent of our preparation. On Friday morning, the email came through. By that time, our flag was flying at half-mast, and our ringers had told for the Queen. We found tables, cloths, and bunches of flowers, and set up the condolence books. I went off to the local primary school and saw the official Church of England school assembly PowerPoint for the death of the Queen. This opened with a still of the Archbishop of Canterbury in black against a dark backdrop with his mouth open. He looked a little like Oz the Great and Powerful. The four-year-olds of the field mice class, who had never before been in a school assembly, were awed into silence. Thank God there were no nervous giggles when the children were told this was a very sad time and they would all be feeling very, very sad. When I got home, I looked through all the Church of England's documents. There were suggestions for readings and prayers for services, whether on Sunday or on weekdays, whether parish, communion or civic commemorations. The suggestions all seemed to come from the standard list of readings for funerals. Was every service for the next ten days to take the form of a funeral? What about the readings I would have otherwise read from the lectionary, in Amos, Timothy, and Luke, which are all about the exercise of power and the distribution of wealth. So many suggestions, so much guidance piled up over so many years, like a centenarian's list of prescriptions. Ten whole days of this, both too short a time to get over the shock and too long a time to postpone all the other things that were happening in the villages. I felt completely insufficient to the task, especially when I started seeing photographs of other people's churches prepared for the time of national mourning. 
They seemed to do it so much better than we did, with their black altar frontals, unbleached beeswax candles, and framed photographs of Her Majesty. Then it occurred to me to think of the others who were in the same boat, the tired and overwhelmed clergy of the established church doing their best for their people, their God, and their supreme governor while longing for a drink and a nap. In the end, we did our best, offering what we're especially good at, a service of music, readings, hymns, and prayers. We arranged to have it early in the evening for the children's sake and kept it short. That night, I dreamed that I'd returned to Trinity to officiate at Evensong in the presence of the college visitor. Trinity's visitor is, by statute, the reigning monarch. I'd failed to bring the correct clerical dress, spent ages searching through the cupboards in the vestry for something suitable to wear, and so failed to rehearse with the organ scholar. At last, I found a lacy cotter, round-necked and very small, and creased. That will do, just put it on, said Her Majesty, sticking her head round the door. So I did, thinking that I could always fall back on the Queen's word of assurance. I processed in and went up to my old stall, which was vacant and dizzyingly high up, so that I had to hold on to the lectern. I opened my mouth to begin and realized, just in time, that the choir always sings an introit. Then, having no idea which set of versicles and responses they were using, I belted out the ordinary version we use at St. Vigor's, and it was all right. While Alice was organising church services in memory of the Queen, Jason Thomas Fenillier was experiencing mixed emotions about the monarchy. As someone from the Commonwealth, my relationship with the monarchy has always been complicated. I've never been a royalist, and never will be, but I respected the late Queen Elizabeth II hugely as an individual. I don't believe the years of exemplary service she did for the UK and the Commonwealth Territories will ever be replicated. For me, she redefined the word British. As a leader, despite her life of duty, she was always gracious about people pursuing their own liberty. My home country, Trinidad and Tobago, abolished her role as head of state in 1976, yet remains part of the Commonwealth. However, like all privileged inheritances, there are burdens that one must bear, and the British monarchy has plenty of those not to mention its murky history. As a Southern Caribbean man, I received a reality check about the British state from my elders, who told me about the treatment of my predecessors who arrived as part of the Windrush generation. These people, who were invited from the West Indies to meet labour shortages in Britain, felt themselves to be British but many of them face racism and dehumanization when they arrived, and some were even sent back to the Caribbean unlawfully decades later in the 2018 Home Office scandal. Any illusion 
that they were British was scorched away. Furthermore, the stain of colonialism on the monarchy cannot be washed away in any one monarch's lifetime. As a person seeking asylum from a Commonwealth country, it has also been amazing to me that I have, like those expelled during the Windrush scandal, had to jump through so many hoops to prove my case. Coming to the UK feels like your relatives have invited you to their home only for you to realise when you get there that you are not welcome. The disruption caused by the Queen's funeral also created stress for refugees in my area, as several of the food banks they rely on were closed. Coordinating with the charities I work with, I sent many WhatsApp messages to local asylum seekers to let them know when food banks would reopen to reassure them that they could get their essentials later in the week. The UK has entered uncharted waters with a new monarch in King Charles III and Camilla, the Queen Consort. Watching the funeral on the television, I saw only a man who has lost both parents within 18 months. I was struck by how traumatising and devastating it must be for him and his family. I saw a man who has been dreading this day for some time, knowing his mother couldn't be queen forever. However, what motivates a person is a sense of meaning, a clearly defined, uniquely determined role will bring life satisfaction for King Charles. I have every hope that he will show his best qualities when called upon, as he has been now. I'll end in saying this to you, the British public, in your time of grief. When I think of my parents, brothers and grandparents passing, I hold their memory in my heart, like I'm hugging infinity, because that's the exact length, height and width of my love for them, and for all great individuals I meet on my life's journey. The news that she was being evicted from her home was a major blow to Jen Zia Serena Smith. A few months ago, my flatmate Jen and I were told that our flat was going to be sold. I say our flat. It's not ours in the sense that we actually own it. But these are our shoes in a heap in the hallway, our plates dripping on the drying rack, our plants sprawling from every windowsill. When I found out that we'd have to leave, I felt shock as it happened so suddenly. Stress, as we just had two months to find somewhere else to live, and anger, as it shouldn't be as hard as it is to find a secure housing situation. I also felt sadness, because this flat is our home, and I, naively maybe, hadn't expected to leave like this. In the winter of 2020, I moved back to Leeds into a one-bed basement flat that was damp and dingy, but where the rent was cheap. I put up with it for a few months before deciding to move in with my friend Jen. The first few flats we viewed were habitable, just. One had black mould all over the bathroom. Another had no furniture in the living room, despite the property being listed as furnished. In a third, lived in by two single men, both the bedrooms smelled of stale sweat. Then we viewed our flat. There was no mould and it didn't smell like body odour or greasy food. 
Light poured into the living room, where the south-facing wall was essentially one big window. I got ahead of myself, noticing small hooks on the walls and imagining what my prints would look like up there, trying to figure out where my behemothic cheese plant would fit. We signed for it immediately. Jen and I set to work as soon as we moved. Jen and I set to work as soon as we moved in, shifting the sofa this way and that, hoovering the remains of the previous tenant's hair out of the carpet. Jen smothered the characterless black leather sofa underneath her primary coloured cushions. My cheese plant went into a corner where it could unfurl its new leaves in peace. Looking around, once everything was in its place, I imagined I would stay for years. That all seems so long ago now. We've been here for a year and a half and know the flat secrets and quirks, like how the toilet sometimes makes a weird noise when the shower is on. There's a palimpsest of memories in every room. Here's the sofa where I sat to eat my birthday cake, where I watched Ekin Sue and Davide win Love Island, where I learnt about the Queen's death. Here's the bed where I sweated out a fever, where I've had sleepovers with old friends, where I had far too many searchly nightmares. Here's the desk where I started my new job, the balcony where I read Annie Lord's notes. Here's the desk where I started my new job, the balcony where I read Annie Lord's notes on heartbreak, the windowsill where I grew a basil plant from seed. I don't yearn to own my own place, but I do think the current housing system is broken. It's ludicrous that one in three millennials will never own a home when so many want to. What I would really like, though, is more robust rights for renters, regulating the sector, making sure that we can't be evicted so easily, controlling rents and forcing landlords to look after their tenants properly. Jen and I have found a new flat now, and I'm sure we'll fill the rooms with happy memories once more. I only hope that when we leave this new place, it will be on our own terms. Former England cricket captain Mike Brearley was moved by watching Freddie Flintoff bring together a group of teenagers to play the game he loves. Having played cricket from a young age, I took the joy of teamwork for granted until a recent BBC One documentary, Freddie Flintoff's Field of Dreams, reminded me that it can be a vital and exciting discovery. Privileged by good fortune, with enough money to pay for equipment and so on, I was among those, perhaps you were too, dear prospect reader, introduced early to activities founded on teamwork. As an adult, I remember when the whole cricket team was lifted, each player functioning above himself, bonded together by group coherence and mutual satisfaction. We went through trials together, tests that created depth and solidarity. In actual test matches over five days, plus in my time a rest day, such a group spirit was felt most powerfully at the end of a gruelling game, especially when we won or played well. Fainter versions of this could be felt even for the opposition, who had, after all, gone through it with us. However, There are people whose circumstances have not afforded them the opportunity to be in a team. This is something that Flintoff, one of England's best all-rounders ever, is determined to rectify, at least for a group of boys in his hometown of Preston. In a three-part documentary released this summer, we watch Flintoff return home with a challenge. Can he find teenage boys who've never played cricket but who might like to try. 
If so, could he help them form a team? Flintoff puts up posters all over the town, in a boxing club, in sportswear outlets, in fish and chip shops. To his relief, boys turn up in dribs and drabs. The documentary shows, movingly, how far they come within a year, many of them having never held a bat before. Before Flintoff's experiment, some of the boys have been isolated and disillusioned, discarded by and rejecting of society. Some found power through being disruptive, whether at school or at home, testing adults to see how they'd cope. There was a tendency to say, I'm not bothered, in order to avoid mockery or disappointment, especially when trying out a new and potentially embarrassing activity. But there was also a willingness to voice their enjoyment. Some of these youngsters lacked expectations and needed to overcome shyness and risk humiliation to learn what becoming part of a team really means. And they turned up after school hours and kept at it. There was also a proper pride. One boy complained about the term underprivileged. Just because we don't play cricket doesn't mean we're underprivileged. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. It's disrespectful to say that. His remark also warned, his remark also warned me of the risk of becoming patronising. Nevertheless, it was clear that many of the participants doubted that anyone would see them as worthwhile. Flintoff did. He was always straight with them, listening to them, telling them not to swear, getting fed up with their fooling around. He never spoke down to them and gave down-to-earth team talks. He told them how impressed he was at their progress. Flintoff had to adjust his own notion of what it is to win. It's having the confidence to go out and give it a go. His belief in these boys was palpable. The changes in the participants by the end of the year were remarkable. They had a new love, which gave them purpose and teammates, plus a real cricket ground with its bar and changing rooms rescued from near dilapidation by the council, who'd been persuaded by Flintoff's enthusiasm to fund £250,000 worth of repairs, to which the cricketer contributed 25000 The boys themselves took part in the painting and renovation. The series was not rose-tinted. It ended realistically, with no guarantee that the impetus will continue for many, but seeds of hope had been planted, a kind of hope that requires learning, hard work and commitment. The cast of characters is varied, including Sean, age 15, articulate, quick, self-aware, but prone to spoil good things, as if to show everyone that it's not easy to win him round. But when he's made captain of a small group at a team-building day in the hills, he leads them with focus, thoughtfulness and fair-mindedness. We, are, we learn at the end that he's not yet joined the cricket club, but has gained an apprenticeship as a plumber and clearly enjoys learning new skills. Ben, now 18, had earlier been sleeping rough in Preston bus station. He'd been depressed. Now he has a job and a place of his own. 
Ben puts into words just how much this previously posh, boring game has transformed his life. Adnan, 16 years old, the star player. Adnan comes along part way in. He is an Afghan asylum seeker who a year before had made his way to the UK crossing the channel in the back of a lorry. He was without a friend, a family member or any English. He did already have a passion for cricket which had been sparked playing in the streets of Afghanistan. He turned out to be a brisk left-arm bowler and a magnificent striker of the ball with relaxed and wristy power. The kindly elderly couple who'd taken him in as a foster child facilitated his passion. At the end of the programme, he's still waiting to hear if he has permission to stay in UK, but the Home Office has at least allowed him to train with a Lancashire junior squad. Late news. Adnan has permission to stay. Then there were Ethan, Josh, Hemi, Ray, Nico, Umar, Dylan, Finn, Mac and the others. The team played their first match against a club team, average age 65, at Patterdale near Ulswater. They gained their first win in the second against a team of younger but more experienced boys. The third was at a public school, where they were wide-eyed at the striped blazers, the Gothic-style chapel, and the acres of beautifully tended pitches. There were wry comments that made us viewers aware of their awe, with its potential for a defensive contempt, but the boys managed to hold on to their self-respect in all these situations. Of course, Flintoff's scheme couldn't have happened without strong support. The broadcaster's budget made money available for kit, bus trips, the use of indoor nets and gyms, and more. But the most important input was that of Flintoff himself, together with a Lancashire teammate of his, Kyle Hogg. Freddie is a special person, though none of the boys had heard of him, and there were also roles for his England contemporaries, Alex Tudor, Monty Panesar, Rob Key, Ryan Sidebottom, current women's international Ellie Threlkeld and ex-England captain Michael Vaughan. In my first meeting with Steve Waugh, who was then captain of one of the most successful Australian cricket teams ever, he told me that his ambition was to make his squad not only better cricketers, but also better people. Clearly, this can happen at every age and every level. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in November and tune into our regular podcast, The Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. If you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives columnists, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect magazine from the newsstand now. Or go to our website, where you can read writing from Deborah Hargreaves, Sharon White, Martin Percy, and many more. Goodbye. Stay safe and see you next time.